Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles uh, now with me to Acts chapter 22. And uh, we're going to be looking at the second part of Paul's sermon or address to the Jewish mob that has arrested him at the temple. They have beaten him severely. The Romans have come down. The Roman commander with at least 200 soldiers have come and rescued him. And so now, he has, uh, he's being taken up a flight of steps into the fortress Antonia. And he pauses and asks the commander if he could turn and address the people, this Jewish mob. So we're going to pick it up again. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 22. And I'll begin reading in verse 1, but we'll primarily focus on verses 17 through 24 this morning. But I want to go ahead and read it to remind you of what we looked at last week. So let me also remind you that as I read this, we're reading the God-breathed Word of God. And this is Holy Scripture. And what a joy and privilege it is to not only have the Word of God, but to be able to read it and to meditate upon it. So that's our, our joyous, joyous privilege this morning. So let me begin in verse 1. Brethren and fathers, this is Paul now on the steps, turning to the Jewish mob and addressing them. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way, Approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you're persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias a man who is devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I looked up at him. And he said, 
The God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw Him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. When they listened to this, to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So Paul has uh, been preaching to this Jewish mob that have just beaten him because of this uh, lie that was circulating that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, that he was speaking out against Moses, against the law, against the temple, against the Jewish people. And so they were stirred up in a rage and they came and arrested him, beat him, And then the Romans came and rescued him. And now they're dragging him off to the fortress Antonia on the northwest corner of the temple compound. But his heart is to turn and preach the gospel to them. And again, I think this is uh, such a testimony of his love for his own people. Because all of these Jews, they hated him. They just beat him But He loved them and wanted to communicate the Gospel to them. So we've uh, reviewed the first 16 verses of His conversion testimony. That's kind of where He begins. He talks about His B.C. days, His his life before Christ, when He was a a wild man, a madman, persecuting the church, beating them, imprisoning them, He had blood on his hands. And so he tells about what he used to be like. And then he told the conversion of how Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and spoke to him and saved him and changed his heart, called him by name, called him into the ministry. He shared all of that. And then Ananias came to him inside of Damascus spoke to him, healed him of his blindness. He had been blind for three days. He began to see, and Ananias told him that God had basically appointed him to know Christ, to see the Messiah, the Righteous One. 
and to bear witness of all men of what he, what he has seen and heard. At that point, Ananias, Paul is still sharing, tells him to rise and be baptized. He gets baptized. And then in verse 17, we pick it up. He says, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem. So now this is three years later after his conversion at Damascus. Remember in Galatians, Paul tells us after he was converted in Damascus, he went into Arabia for three years and then he went to Jerusalem. So now we're, he's skipping over three years. And in verse 17, he now speaks when he comes to Jerusalem. And all of this happened from the time Paul is now speaking to the mob. This, all of this happened 20 years in the past. So he's recounting all of this, trying to, trying to win an audience, win a hearing from all these violent Jews, saying, look, I used to be just like you, but look at the nature of my conversion, it was supernatural. He's trying to get them to listen, to pay attention, in light of just the incredible event of his own uh, salvation and conversion. So in verse 17, he finally, now from Damascus, and he goes to Arabia for three years, now he comes back to Jerusalem. He meets the pillars of the church there, and he's in the temple, verse 17, praying. Now he goes back to the very place where now they have just arrested him. Twenty years earlier, he was there in the same temple, praying to the God of their fathers, the true God, and the Lord speaks to him. He says in verse 17, I fell into a trance. And usually when you hear someone falling into a trance, God is visiting them. God is giving them a vision. This is the very same word that's used of Peter back in Acts chapter 10 when he fell into a trance on the rooftop and God sent down that sheet of all those animals in it, including unclean animals. That was to teach him that the gospel is now for the Gentiles as well. So Paul now is falling into a trance. And what does Christ say to him in verse 18? I saw Him saying to me, and again, this would be Jesus Christ, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So Christ now tells Paul, get out of the city, get out of the temple. And the reason is, because the Jews there will not accept your testimony about me. They will not accept it. Now this is obviously an indictment on their sin as Jews for rejecting their Messiah. They will not accept Paul's testimony about their Messiah. So it's an indictment of their sin. It exposes their spiritual blindness. And Christ now tells Paul as he's returned to Jerusalem now, to get out and get out fast. Get out quickly. So obviously they haven't changed a bit. Because 20 years later, he's back in the very same temple, and they have the same animosity, the same rage, the same unbelieving heart as they did 20 years earlier. But they will not accept your testimony about me. So he must leave the temple and leave the city. Now in verse 19 and 20, Paul is reluctant to do that. He loves his people. Romans 10. He loves them. He wants to see them saved. So he says in verse 19, 
And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. In other words, Jesus has just told Paul in a vision to leave Jerusalem. And he says, but Lord, wait a second. Surely they will understand. Surely they will under, they'll connect the dots. They'll see how zealous I was, how, how vicious I was against your followers. And even when Stephen was being stoned, I was wholeheartedly in approval of it and I even helped them by watching over the coats. Surely they will understand. Surely they will see that my changes can't be man-made. That you did this. It was supernatural. Surely they'll understand that. They'll see all that. They'll see the change, the transformation that has occurred. And they'll listen to me. They'll, They'll give me a hearing. And that's what he's thinking. And so he expresses his reluctance to leave. Surely he thinks they'll see that his conversion is due only to the supernatural act of God and they'll listen to me. But at this point, Paul doesn't realize, again, this is 20 years earlier, the depth of the Jewish Jewish depravity and the judgment of divine hardening that was upon the nation. Now by this time in Acts 22, Paul has already written his letter to the Romans. And in the Romans, in chapter 11, he says that there is a partial hardening upon the nation. God is going to save the remnant, but the rest are going to be hardened. He understands that now, but he's telling about what he was experiencing 20 years earlier. The majority of the Jews are going to be rejected, and they will reject the gospel, and God will save a remnant. But Paul, you need to leave Jerusalem and leave now. They're they're not going to accept your witness about me at all. And then the second reason why he needs to leave is found in verse 21. The first is that they won't accept his testimony about Christ. And verse 21 gives us a second reason why Jesus is telling him to leave Jerusalem. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now Paul didn't choose this as his ministry, Christ gave it to him. Christ drafted him. He didn't volunteer. Christ drafted him. He didn't have a choice. Christ said, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is, uh, Paul is explaining to them the nature of his ministry that it's given to him by the righteous one, by Jesus Christ, the Messiah who appeared to him. Now, how do they respond to this? Well, look at verse 22. And I'm actually totally forgetting about my PowerPoint. So all of that we've just gone over. So now we're here. How do they respond to his message? Well, not very well. Once he mentioned the word Gentiles that Jesus Christ was now sending him far away to the Gentiles, that was not good in their mind, in their ears. Verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement 
And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So the crowd listened up, listened up to this point, but quickly turned against Paul when that word Gentile came out of his mouth. That word was sufficient to condemn him as a desecrator of the temple, to make him a blasphemer against Moses and the law. He was now viewed as an apostate, a defector, a deserter, a traitor to God's people. That's the way the Jews are now thinking in terms of the Apostle Paul. The name Gentiles elicited about as much rage as the name Trump at at the Democratic Convention. They heard that name Gentiles and they they just erupted because when he was showing that his ministry was now to bring the blessings to Gentiles, that was totally contrary to their whole worldview. So they wanted to kill him, verse 22. Away with such a fellow from the earth. He shouldn't be allowed to live. And then they started throwing off their cloaks, throwing up dust off the ground, and all of these were outward. You know, the Jews are very expressive people. And when they show their anger, you know, today we just have a frown or something like that. But I mean, they, they rip their clothes, they throw off their clothes, they grab dirt on the ground, throw it up in the air. Very animated. So they're throwing off their cloaks either to get ready to throw stones or as a sign of their anger in response to what they think is Paul's blasphemy. And I think they would have thrown stones if they were available. And then they toss dust up in the air which is a sign of their anger and disrespect for the Apostle Paul. Remember, by the way, all the way back in 2 Samuel when David and his men had to flee Jerusalem because Absalom, his son, had become a traitor to him and had come in with an army and was taking over Jerusalem. And so David had to flee for his life. And you remember as he's leaving Jerusalem, there's a man by the name of Shimei who went along the hillside parallel with David. And as he was going, he was cursing David, casting stones at David, and throwing dust at him. I mean, that's how you show your anger and just your animosity towards someone. Well, that's what they're doing. In other words, their heads, because he is now ministering to Gentiles, their heads have exploded like Mount St. Helens. And Paul's hope to gain a hearing was torpedoed and sunk by their hatred. And thank God that uh, civil government was functioning like it was supposed to and the Romans came and basically rescued him again from the violence that was about to be unleashed upon the Apostle Paul. So what is it about, again about the Gentiles that erupted and caused so much anger, and uh, so that he couldn't finish his message. Uh, He probably would have gone on to preach the gospel, talk about the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Christ, 
But he wasn't able to, to get that far to finish it because he mentioned that Christ was going to send him far away to the Gentiles. So what was it about the Gentiles that caused so much problem here? Well, it wasn't that Paul was converting Gentiles. I mean, the Jews tried to do that as well. They understood the idea of going out and trying to make converts and proselytes of the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus even rebuked them, the Jews, the leaders, because of their distortions in this way. Look at what Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, verse 15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So the Jews were going around trying to make proselytes of the Gentiles. Most would not become full-fledged Jews because you'd have to submit to circumcision. So many of them came partway and became God-fearers. But they were out trying to make proselytes. Whenever they succeeded, Jesus said, you make them twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. In other words, your Jewish evangelism, which they certainly believed in, was not actually saving the Gentiles. It was actually damning them all the more. Making them twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So these are lost people preaching a lost message and their converts are doubly lost. That's basically Jewish evangelism. But they didn't have a problem with going out and trying to make proselytes of the Gentiles. But using their message, trying to bring them under the law for some kind of works-based salvation that if you just become a Jew and get circumcised and live by the law of Moses, then you'll go to heaven, that only makes them as lost as a goose. And that won't deliver anybody from their sins. But it will only damn you all the more in your sins. That's what they were doing. It's like trying to save a drowning man by throwing a lead anchor on him. Just going to sink him all the faster to the bottom of the lake. That's their evangelism. So they weren't opposed to evangelism. They were just preaching a false uh, gospel. Really no good news at all. So that wasn't the issue of their anger towards Paul when he brought up the Gentiles because they knew what he really meant. See, it was really a question of how those Gentiles are to be saved. And Paul's message was quite clear that the Gentiles were to be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to keep the law of Moses. Now Jewish orthodoxy says that Gentiles must become Jews to be saved. That's what the Jewish people believed. Paul's Gospel was Gentiles are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And they understood that. Because they were seeing and hearing and knowing 
that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles and they were getting saved and receiving the Holy Spirit and the blessings of Israel's covenant without ever becoming Jews. And that was the blasphemy in their mind. That was the abomination. That was the anathema in their mind. Now all of this had been settled with the uh, Jerusalem church all the way back in Acts chapter 15. But these are unbelievers that he's dealing with. They don't, they don't believe that. They don't buy into it. So again, the missionary activity of Israel was all about making Gentiles into Jews. And Gentiles could only go to heaven if they first became a Jew. Paul insisted, no. Gentiles could be saved. They could get all the blessings of the Messiah, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the inheritance in heaven by faith alone in Christ alone. You don't have to become a Jew first to be saved. And that was like pouring acid on their self-righteous ego and their self-righteous theology. See, they were Jews who were living in the shadows of the Old Covenant. And they preferred the darkness of the shadow rather than coming to the light of Jesus Christ. They preferred the darkness. They would not leave their ceremonial law. They would not leave the laws of Moses. They wouldn't leave circumcision. You had to be saved. You had to do all that stuff. And this is why Jesus said about them early in His ministry, but if your eye is bad and your whole body, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now what's He saying there? He's saying, you Jewish leaders, you Pharisees, you scribes, you chief priests, you think you have the light. You think you're the light of the world. You can go out to the Gentiles and turn them into Jews and make them saved. You think you have the light. But really the light that you think that you have is really darkness. And he says if someone thinks they have the light, they think they have the truth, but they really are full of darkness, then how great is that darkness? And that was true of the Jewish leaders. In John 3, Jesus also said, this is the judgment that the light, referring to Himself, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. They loved the darkness. They were living in the shadows of the Old Covenant. They were blind to the coming of the Messiah and the entrance of the New Covenant. They wanted to stay in the shadows, stay in the darkness, and they would reject the light. They love the darkness rather than the light. That's the depravity of their own heart. So that's how they responded. They wanted to do away with Christ. Do away with the preachers of Christ. They wanted to do away with the church. They wanted to do away with all of it. So when Paul mentioned that Christ is sending Him to the Gentiles, they knew enough of the message of the Apostle Paul to realize he's preaching a different message than what they're preaching. He's going out and doing evangelism with what is truly good news for the Gentiles. You can be saved by faith alone in Christ alone apart from the works of the law. 
The Jews said, no, no, no. You're saved by the works of the law, in effect. You've got to become a Jew. And then you can be saved. So when he said, Christ is sending me out to the Gentiles, they knew what his message was. And they knew they disagreed with it violently. And so that's what caused them, I think, to erupt in such, danger, in, in such animosity towards him. Because in effect, what Paul's Gospel is saying is that Jews and Gentiles are now equal. They're on the same footing. They're all sinful. And the only way you can ever be forgiven is to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way for a Jew or for a Gentile. Not by the works of the law. That cannot save you. And it was that Gospel that they hated so much. And they wanted to do away with it. So, in shouting out, kill Him, taking off their cloaks, tossing dust in the air, the mob is about ready to go into attack mode again. I think if they could have, they would have rushed the Romans, they would have grabbed Paul, dragged him out of the city, and they would have stunned him to death right then and there. But again in verse 24, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and again, he is rescued and delivered again. There's a couple of applications or thoughts that I want us to consider from this first message to the mob, the Jewish mob, if you will. The first one that we see from this uh, passage is kind of a takeaway is it took a lot of boldness to do what Paul did. I mean, he had just been beaten by these people. They don't like him. They hate him. They want him dead. They want his gospel obliterated. And it took a tremendous amount of boldness and courage for Paul to stand up, to turn on the steps, and address this mob that really wants to kill him. Tremendous courage. And it also took tremendous courage to expose to them their sin. Because remember he said, Jesus told me that you're not going to accept my testimony about you, Jesus. So he is exposing their sin. That's always a dangerous thing to do. But it's an essential part of the Gospel. If people don't first get confronted with their sin, they have no need for a Savior. And yet it takes a tremendous amount of boldness and courage to talk to someone about their sin. That there's a heaven and there's a hell. And we are sinners and we all by nature deserve to go to hell. That's the bad news, followed by the good news that God in His mercy and grace has provided His Son to come and die for sinners just like us. And if we repent and come to Him and believe in Him, then we can be forgiven and have heaven. But you cannot sidestep the sin issue. So here's the Apostle Paul with people that already hate his guts. And they want his guts splattered on the ground when they stone him. And he's speaking to them of their sin. That all that's gonna sometimes, you know, Jesus says, Don't throw your your pearls before the swine. But he is confronting them again with their sin, which is only going to stir up within them all the more anger. And we need to be wise and gracious in preaching Christ, but we've got to tell them the truth about who they are 
and what faces them apart from them repenting and trusting in Christ. And I bring this up because we cannot do this faithfully without the power of the Spirit of God. I mean, there are many times when I don't speak as I should speak when I'm around an unbeliever. I have an opportunity and I don't take advantage of it to my own shame. But what Christ said in Acts 1 is that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And the challenge for you and me this morning is, will we pray, Oh God, give me more of the power of the Holy Spirit so I can be a faithful witness to Christ in the world in which I live. So you got to at least get to that point where you're willing to pray and desire more power. I don't may not have power now, but Lord, I want more power. Lord, help me. Give me more fullness of the Spirit of God so I can be that faithful witness. The Apostle Paul was an incredibly gifted man. Uh, he knew from the very calling when he was saved that he was going to suffer for the Gospel. But his boldness certainly challenges us. And that certainly comes out clear, I think, in this passage. So the first thing is, uh, Paul gives us a godly example of boldness. If I was in his position, I think I would be looking to get inside the fortress as quickly as possible, shut the door, get me away from those people. But he had a heart for them because he knew that they were lost. He also knew that most of them were under divine hardening and only a remnant was going to be saved, but he didn't know who the remnant was. So he preached to all of them. So that's a boldness that only the Spirit of God can produce, but He can give us more boldness if we seek it from Him. That's the first point. The second is really just to see the glory of Christ in the New Covenant because this is the whole Gentile element of this. The glory of Christ in the New Covenant. Because really, that's what Paul is preaching. 2 Corinthians 3, he's a minister of the New Covenant. Now, notice, I want to go back and just talk about the New Covenant just for a second. Because we're in the New Covenant. Paul was preaching the New Covenant, the Messiah of the New Covenant. But it was made, it was first not first, but it was clearly promised all the way back in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 and following. And notice what Jeremiah prophesied. He said that, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So he makes a covenant with Israel. So the new covenant is made with, with Israel. Only a remnant are going to enter into the blessings, but it's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What we find in other passages is that Gentiles are going to be grafted into this covenant as well. That's not stated in this verse, but you certainly see it in other places. So let me just kind of camp on this just for a second because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He gloried in his ministry. And that's what brings us into the family of God is the new covenant and the inclusion of Gentiles. It's not just for Jews. We are grafted in through repentance and faith. So for example, 
in Genesis 12 when God made His covenant with Abraham. Notice what He says, I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So even way back then in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised to Abraham that the blessings are just not going to come to your physical seed, but all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's got to include Gentiles as well. So even in the Abrahamic covenant, you see these glimpses, these hints, that Gentiles ultimately will be included in God's gracious plan of salvation. Later, to Abraham, God said this to him. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So a father of a multitude of nations. So now Abraham is now going to be the father not just of the Jews, but he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations, which means Gentile nations. In other words, his children are going to be Jewish believers and Gentile believers as well. I'll make you a father of a multitude of nations. So Gentiles are going to be grafted in. Zechariah says something similar. Chapter 2, verse 11. Many nations, it's a prophecy of the new covenant. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. The nations will join themselves with Jews that believe and they will all become my people, Zechariah promises. Joel says it will come about after that that I will pour out my spirit on all Jews. And say all Jews, says all mankind, all mankind, Jews and Gentiles. And this is what blew the minds of the Jews when Cornelius got saved in Acts chapter 10. Because a Gentile is now getting the Holy Spirit. He's getting our covenant blessing and it's being given to a Gentile believer. See, they wrestled with this truth. They they fought against it because they thought they were special. They were the only people of God. And in order to get those blessings, you have to become one of us. You have to become a Jew. But in the new covenant, that changes. So now the blessings go to Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles don't have to become Jews to receive the blessing. Isaiah 49 is another great passage. Is it too small a thing that you should be My servant? Now this is actually a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And look at what the Messiah is going to do. You'll be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that My salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, including Gentiles. So even Isaiah understood that when the Messiah comes and brings the new covenant, He'll be the light of the nations so that salvation goes to the ends of the earth. So again, you find this this inclusion of the Gentiles. But again, this was something that the Jewish people struggled with. They said, no, no, no. The Gentile's going to get saved. He first has to become one of us. Has to become a Jew first. But now when Christ comes, Christ inaugurates this new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, 
says a new and living way, referring to the new covenant in the context which He, that is Christ, inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. In other words, Christ inaugurated, He brought in the new covenant. And He did it through the veil that is His flesh when He died on the cross. That's when the new covenant was implemented. In Hebrews 12, verse 24, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Not will be, He is now. So we're in the new covenant. And this new covenant is glorious. It brings glory to Christ because He's saving not only just sinners from one nation, but sinners from all nations. And that brings the glory of Christ into greater focus. So a couple of things on this salvation from the new covenant. I'm just trying to kind of exploring the significance of the Gentiles and why this is such a glorious truth that the Gospel has that any sinner can be saved. Not just Jews, but Gentiles without having to become a Jew. Merely by putting their faith in Christ alone. The salvation of the new covenant, several things. Covenant membership is no longer based on physical birth, but spiritual birth. Now in the old covenant, you're a covenant member by being a physical descendant of Abraham. In the new covenant, it's different. You now have to be spiritually born again. That's what makes you a covenant member. Look at what John says in John 1, but as many as received Him, Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you want to be a member of the new covenant? It's not based on physical birth, it's based on spiritual birth. And that's the uniqueness of the new covenant. The new covenant changes what is required for covenant membership. Secondly, the salvation is no longer tied to one nation, but is now international. It goes out to all people. As Revelation 5 speaks of Christ, it says, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So in the new covenant, Gentiles now can flood in merely by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Not based on becoming a Jew. Not based on keeping the law. Not based on circumcision. You come freely to Christ alone. And again, this is what the Jews simply could not handle or tolerate. And a third aspect of this salvation in the new covenant is that now a son of Abraham involves grace, not race. It's no longer based upon being an Israelite. It's no longer based on being from the race of Israel. It's based on grace, not race. So Paul writes in Galatians 3, therefore be sure, don't doubt it, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Are you a Gentile, but you have faith in Jesus Christ? Then you are a son of Abraham. It's not based on race, it's based on grace. If you have faith, you're a child of Abraham. 
And you're an heir of Abraham too, verse 29. He goes on to say the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. That's the Abrahamic covenant. How does Paul understand the Abrahamic covenant? That all the nations are going to be blessed in you. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. Well, that's when Gentiles believe and they come into the blessing. Merely by faith alone. That's Paul's understanding. So this inclusion of the Gentiles is something that Paul gloried in. It's the glory of Christ. It's the glory of His Gospel that you don't have to become a Jew to be saved. And there's one more passage, and I want to go ahead and, and read it. It's, it's a, a few verses, but I think it's just something that every Gentile, which is all of us here this morning, that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, should glory in this passage. This is from Ephesians 2, and this is what Paul says about us before we were saved. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I mean, and that's the way the Jews still looked at the Gentiles. You're outside the covenant. You have no hope. You're without God. And the only way you can be saved and go to heaven is you've got to become one of us. You've got to become a Jew. But then look at what Paul adds to that in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made both groups, that is Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall that separated them. By abolishing in His flesh the enmity, that would be the enmity of the curses of the law that fall upon us, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that He Himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And then in the next chapter, he says, this, my friends, is the glory of the mystery of Christ. This is the glory of the new covenant. This is the glory of Jesus Christ. It's the mystery. And what is that mystery of Christ? To be specific, that the Gentiles, and this is by faith alone in Christ alone, not by becoming a Jew, but by faith alone in Christ alone are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. In other words, Gentiles now receive all the blessings of the new covenant promised to Israel. Gentiles are grafted in by faith alone. They receive all the blessings. They're now sons of Abraham. They're heirs of Abraham. They get the Holy Spirit. They get the forgiveness. They get the new heart. They get all the the whole package deal by faith alone in Christ alone. They do not have to become Jews to become saved. And this is what the Jews living in the shadows of the Old Covenant 
unwilling to come into the light of the new covenant, the freedom of the gospel, salvation is a gift by God's grace, not earned, not deserved, not by the works of the law, by faith alone in Christ. They were unwilling to come into the light of the new covenant. They stayed in the shadows and the darkness of the old covenant. And when Paul stood up and said, I'm preaching this gospel to the Gentiles who can come in and basically have all of your blessings by faith alone. Again, their heads just exploded in anger because they were so committed to the old covenant, the law of Moses, that that is necessary. Circumcision is necessary to go to heaven. And they thought that Paul was preaching a false gospel when really he was preaching the only gospel. So I wanted to go through all of that just to kind of give you maybe a little more appreciation for the glory of Christ in the new covenant, including Gentiles being grafted into that one olive tree, sharing all the blessings with believing Jews so that now we become one in Christ. There's one final observation from this passage that I want us to kind of end on, and that is just the importance of the providence of God in rescuing Paul. So in verse 24, we find that the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So now this is the second time that the providence of God has rescued Paul from the Jewish mob that surely wanted to put him to death. And in just a few more verses down the way, he's going to be stretched out to be scourged. And the Lord in His providence saves him from that scourging. And we'll get into that, Lord willing, next time. But what we see from this is that in this scene, this very chaotic, the Jews were screaming, yelling, throwing off their cloaks, throwing up dirt in the air. There's chaos everywhere. But we need to understand that God was absolutely in control. He was in control of all the circumstances that were taking place. Paul was safely in the hands of the Romans, protected from the mob, because really he was safely in the hands of God. And by the way, he's going to be in Roman custody now for the rest of the book of Acts for at least the next four years. And all of this is a part of God's plan for the Apostle Paul. But I think it speaks to us about how we respond in times when our lives are full of similar chaos and it seems like things are out of control. That we must learn to acknowledge the hand of God in our trying circumstances. Even those circumstances that bring restrictions, those circumstances that bring loss of health or an impairment of our freedom of movement. We either learn to acknowledge the hand of God or we don't acknowledge the hand of God and become discouraged and, and full of anxiety and stress because things are out of control. We can either faint with discouragement or accept it from the hand of God and look for ways to continue to serve the Lord joyfully in spite of the difficulties or the trials that have entered our life. 
God was with Paul. And God was protecting Paul. Not from every trial. He had just been beaten. God didn't protect him from that. God ain't going to protect you from every trial. Some of them may be severe. Some of them may be very, very painful and difficult. But He is the one who is in control. He measures which trials get through His protection and which ones do not. He's the sovereign one. He's the one in control. And all suffering has a purpose. And all suffering has His presence with us. His purpose we may not understand at that point in time. His presence we may not see at that point in time. But He's always with us. He's promised to always be with us. And He's the one that ultimately protects us. I recently read a story of early American Indians who had a unique practice of training up their young braves. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, after he had been taught how to hunt and scout and fish, they put him through one final test entering into manhood. And that night, the night before his 13th birthday, they would blindfold this young boy and they would walk him several miles out into a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. And up until that point, he had never been very far away from the security of his family and his tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded in the darkness taken out into a secluded spot which he did not know where it was. And when they arrived on the spot, the men left him and he was able to take his blindfold off, but he had to stay there all night by himself. He was in the middle of a thick woods and of course he would be terrified. Sitting there in the darkness, alone, in the cold, all by yourself, and you hear a twig snap. And just think of what's going through your mind. Or you hear a noise over there or an owl hooting over there. And it was a, a frightening experience. And after what seemed like an eternity, dawn broke. And the first rays of sunlight began to filter through the trees and the, and the leaves and began to gradually illuminate what was around him. And he could see the flowers and the kind of make out the trees, outline of a path that would lead him back to his village. And then to his utter astonishment, as he began to look around and things started to visually come into his sight, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few yards away armed with a bow and an arrow. And it was his father. And he had been there all night long with him. And he never knew it. And that's the kind of promise that Christ makes to you and to me. That you may feel like that you're all alone and no one knows and no one cares. But Christ says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I am always there to protect you. And nothing will come into your life 
that I have not in my infinitely wise and good plan for your life allowed to enter in. And Christ is the one who is in control. And again, nothing will get through His will without His permission. No sickness, no trial, no suffering. If it gets through to afflict your life, it comes with a purpose. Because all suffering has a purpose. That was true in Paul's life, and that is true in your life. All suffering has a purpose. And all suffering has His presence. His purpose may not be understood at the point in time. His presence may not be seen. But He's always there with us. So that when Christ suffered on the cross, and He shed His blood and paid the penalty for our sins, He inaugurated the new covenant. And the new covenant was made with the house of Israel. But it was also a covenant of far greater magnitude and glory and power and grace so that it would reach out to the ends of the earth so that even now Gentiles who are convicted of their sin and repent and trust in Christ alone can enter into the fullness of what it means to be a child of God. Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you acknowledged your sin And have you realized that only Jesus Christ can save you? Come to Him. Repent. Believe. And be saved. This is Christ's story. And this is Christ's glory. That not just Jews, but even Gentiles can now be saved through Him. And we should glory in that as well. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we want to thank You, Lord, for the boldness of the Apostle Paul to stand up in front of this violent crowd that wanted his death. This bloodthirsty mob, and yet in his love for them, had the boldness and the courage to share his testimony and to begin to point them to Jesus Christ, though his message was cut short. But Father, we thank You most of all for Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, for the coming of the new covenant. That in Your great mercy and Your love, You grafted in believing Gentiles along with believing Jews that we might become one man, one body in worshiping and serving You. Not by the works of the law, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And oh God, how we thank You for saving us from our sins. So Lord, thank You that Your providence protects us and watches over us. Many of us even here this morning are going through some very dark times. Some great trials are in their life. And comfort them, Lord. Give them Your peace in confidence knowing that You're in control. That we might learn to serve You and love You and worship You, knowing that all things have a purpose and in all things we have Your presence. And we give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen.